Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to the podcast. In this very special episode, we will be learning about the Sky Island region in the desert southwest in northern Mexico. As many of you know, I live in Tucson, Arizona, which is in the Sonoran Desert and in the northern portion of the Sky Island region. This episode will highlight the amazing work of the Sky Island Alliance, a regional conservation group doing some critically important work along the border in this vast, incredible landscape. Many of you probably aren't familiar with the Sky Islands, a truly unique ecosystem. We'll hear about the wildlife in the area, some of the major threats to the ecosystem, what climate change means to the region, and we'll also learn a bit about the elusive jaguar. Yes, it's found in the area. We'll take a visit to the infamous border wall and learn what damage it has done to the biodiversity in the region and what steps we can take to ensure that the wall isn't completed. In this episode, you'll learn what the Alliance is doing in relation to the border wall and how it seeks to conserve this region for future generations. The organization has a unique mission in that it focuses on not only land in the United States, but also in Mexico. You'll hear how the Alliance works closely with Mexican partners, along with having Mexican staff and board members. What I'm really excited to share is the field trip I take with staff from the Alliance. We'll also hear from board members and volunteers on what makes this ecosystem so important and why they support the work the Alliance is doing. In recognition of the traditional owners of the land of this region, I want to acknowledge the Pascua Yaqui tribe and the Tohono O'odham Nation. Okay, let's take a trip to the Sky Island region with the Alliance. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Luis Mistal, the Executive Director of the Sky Island Alliance. Hi, Luis. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to welcome you on and tell the story of the Sky Island Alliance. So let's just jump right into it. What is the Sky Island Alliance? We are a conservation organization working in southeastern Arizona and northern Mexico in what's known as the Sky Island region uh, to protect the diversity of life and lands here. How old is the organization? So we're celebrating our 30-year anniversary this year. Wow, exciting. I should know this, but wow. So any plans for the anniversary? Yeah. So later this year in the fall, we'll be doing a little bit of a tour of the Sky Islands and visiting some sites where we've worked in the past to share the kind of work we're doing. And importantly, we'll be working to build a vision for the next 30 years. So talking about our work going forward and engaging communities where we're visiting in the Sky Islands in that vision. Okay. So you had mentioned you're working in Mexico, but I want to prompt you and what's unique about your staff and your board as a conservation group? The Sky Island region, as I mentioned, is in Arizona and Sonora, Mexico. So we're working in this binational region that's spanning the U.S.-Mexico border. And in order to do that, we've got staff and board that are binational. So we've got a staff member from Mexico leading our work in Mexico and board members from Mexico as well, helping us lead our strategy and approach for the entire organization. So we're going to talk about the uniqueness of Sky Islands and just some of the other conversations that we're having. But what really is a Sky Island? If you can help my listeners visualize what it really means. When you think of Colorado, you think of just these chains of mountain ranges. But what is a Sky Island? 
Right. So a sky island is a forested mountain that's rising up out of desert and grassland seas, as we like to describe it. So there are these isolated mountains. There's about 55 of them scattered in this region where we're working. And up on top is pine and conifer forest, like you would think of seeing in the Rocky Mountains. And then down in the lowlands and intervening valleys is Sonoran Desert Habitat and Chihuahuan Desert Habitat. So there's this amazing diversity of life moving from the valleys up into the mountains and this really neat dynamic with these isolated mountains that each have their own characteristics. I'm actually looking out my window straight up at the Catalina Mountains, you know, one of the sky islands. It's really cool. You just described the vegetation that you can go from the top to the bottom, but they described that if you drive up the Catalina Highway all the way to the summit at Mount Lemon, it's the equivalent of driving from where? Yeah, from uh, Mexico all the way to Canada in uh, basically 40 minutes or so. You get to pass through all these different ecosystems like the Sonoran Desert and sort of mid-elevation pine oak woodland and all the way up into the pine trees, dug fir, conifer habitat up at the top of the mountain, rising up to 8,000 feet. And our tallest skyline actually gets up to 10,000 feet. So some really high elevation forested habitat up at the tops of these mountains. I have done that drive many times and it truly is remarkable that you do start in the desert and you end up and it's cooler and you have, like you said, the conifers and it's truly an amazing experience to do it. Yeah, it's pretty gorgeous. And this dynamic of all these different types of habitats packed together in, in these mountain ranges creates an amazing amount of diversity of life here in the region, which makes it really special. Okay. So you're not going to be able to list everything, but that's a good prompt. Like what are some of the unique species of wildlife? And you think of even the plants. Mm -hmm. So the Sky Islands are, we like to call them a continental crossroads. They're, They're sitting at this special place where the Rocky Mountains, the Sierra Madre, the Sonoran Desert and the Chihuahuan Desert are all coming together and overlapping and mixing. And so what that means is that we get species like black bear living alongside tropical species like jaguar. And another great example is the the elegant trogon, a very tropical looking bird that's just at its northern range here in the Sky Islands. The white-nosed coati is another one that we think of, people think of as a more tropical species that's here in the Sky Islands. And it's really just amazing. There's 14 species of hummingbirds here, just an incredible overlap of all these different ecosystems with lots of different life thriving. Well, I think it's probably one of the few places that you could see a bighorn sheep and a coati, right? Maybe if you get very lucky on the same day, you could see that. Yes, you could see that for sure. So what are some of the major conservation challenges you're facing as an organization? As I mentioned, these mountain islands are are naturally isolated in terms of the cool mountain habitat, having this really different desert and grassland in between. And then on top of that is human development, which further isolates sky islands. So this is an arid area in the world, and it's really important for wildlife like black bears and jaguars that we mentioned to be able to move around to find food and water and mates. And that can be challenging with intervening human development like towns and major highways. So that's one issue we're dealing with. And another major issue is climate change, of course. We're in coming off of 12 
here in Tucson, Arizona specifically, off of the 12 driest months ever recorded. So we're, we're facing warmer temperatures and less availability of water in an area where water is already very scarce. So that's an important focus of our work. And then there's the people piece of everything. So we're working in this ecosystem that's really one connected ecosystem across the U.S.-Mexico border. But that border in the middle of the Sky Island region presents a lot of challenges with border wall construction, severing wildlife corridors and disrupting waterways and spring ecosystems. And we're going to learn a lot more about that as we go on our field trip later on. Okay, when people think of the Western United States, many think of wildfire. What role does fire play in the Sky Island region? Yes, fire is a big driver here as well. And like many places in the West, we're facing challenges with increased size and intensity of wildfire and the same sorts of issues other places are facing in the West with a buildup of fuels and that kind of thing. One thing about the Sky Islands that we're concerned about and working to try and address with some habitat restoration is when a big fire burns through a Sky Island, like we just had a big fire burn through the Santa Catalinas that we're looking at here in Tucson, a large portion of the habitat can be destroyed in a foul, one foul swoop. And for animals that need specific habitat up there at that high elevation, you know, we're thinking about where they, where else they can find that in the region and how to help support those wildlife, buy them time to help them move around and adapt to these big changes. So we're in the, the desert Southwest and there are many tribal lands in the area. What role do indigenous people play in the region? First of all, all of our work throughout the Sky Island region on both sides of the border takes place on indigenous land. Here in Tucson, we're on the land of the Tohono O'odham and Pascoyaki and other indigenous peoples. And these people have ties to many places that are now on public land in the region. For example, springs that we, I think we'll talk a little bit more about, but are these really important places where water reaches the surface of the earth are often very important to, to these local tribes. And they have long, long standing connections with these places. And so there's that piece of the connection with indigenous people to all these places where we're working. And certainly with the Tana Odom Reservation here in, in Southern Arizona, they are doing their own management of wildlife and wild places in their own way. And we are working uh, to educate ourselves on who the land belongs to, the history of the land, and better understand our neighboring Native nations and indigenous peoples in our work at Sky Island Alliance. The indigenous people are obviously partners that you're working with, but who are some of the other partners that you work with closely in the region? Yeah, so we are the Sky Island Alliance, and it really takes a village to conserve this special place with lots of complexity around land ownership. And we work closely with federal agencies like the Forest Service and the National Park Service, who are managing big chunks of land here in the U.S. portion of the region. We work with other conservation organizations that, like Wildlands Network is an example that are also have shared goals in the region. Borderlands Restoration Network's another one. We partner with them on restoration projects. And we work, importantly, particularly in Mexico, we are working with private landowners. So in Mexico, most of the land is private, unlike the public land here in the U.S. And that takes requires a really different approach to conservation and is an important part of the picture of keeping the whole region connected and thriving. 
We're about to learn a lot more about the areas that you're focusing on as an organization. And I'm going to talk to other people that are, are part of this alliance. So we're going to, to learn more, but we're going on a field trip, which I'm very excited. You're taking me out into the field. Where are we going? Yeah. So we're going to leave from Tucson and go south a couple hours to the Huachuca Mountains and the San Rafael Valley. This is right on the US-Mexico border. It's in a really important wildlife corridor. And we're going to take a look at what's going on with border wall construction. And we're going to also take a look at springs in the area and talk about what's going on with these important uh, water ecosystems. Well, I'm very excited to get out there and let's see a part of Arizona that I haven't seen yet. You're going to return at the end of this episode. We're going to wrap things up. I'll see you at the, the meeting place, Luis. Sounds great. See you there. That adapters is the sound of me clanking on the infamous border wall. I'm taking a field trip with the Sky Island Alliance down to the border wall to learn about remote springs, the wildlife and ecosystems in the region, and what is the current status of the border wall. I'll be visiting with three Alliance staff, Luis Mitzal, the executive director, who you just heard from, Dr. Emily Burns, program director, and Dr. Paulo Quadri, the conservation director. We'll be visiting several locations, and I'll be learning from each of them what is going on in the region. Okay, let's get down to the southern Arizona near the border. Luis, where are we? We're standing outside of the town of Patagonia, dozens of miles from the U.S.-Mexico border, and we're in this really important jaguar corridor in between the Santa Rita Mountains and the Huachuca and Patagonia Mountains that are protected open space uh, managed by the Forest Service. And we're looking south across these rolling oak woodland hills through a really prime corridor that connects these mountains into the mountains in Sonora, Mexico, through a wildlife corridor that's still open and permeable for critters like jaguars and other large mammals across the U.S.-Mexico border. So what kind of things are we seeing? What kind of flora are we seeing? Yeah, so we're in this desert grassland habitat with oaks, kind of rolling hills. We've got some mesquites here, and we can see in the distance the the really classic pine oak woodland. That's an important part of the Sky Island habitat that's really important for a lot of different wildlife in these little bit higher mountain areas. Paolo, we have just driven through a huge grassland, and so it's sort of a, a, a different type of ecosystem surrounding these sky islands. Could you give a little bit more background on what we just went through? Yes, this, this would be the, the classical example of the what we call the, the oceans among or between the sky islands, right? These oceans are typically either Sonoran Desert or these grasslands or Chihuahuan Desert. From there, the uh, these islands protrude that have oak woodlands and pine oak woodlands. And this is the result of a very long sort of geological, morphological formation that goes from the Sierra Madres all the way south to Mexico, all the way north to southern Idaho and Oregon, which is called the Ra uh, Basin and Range Province, which means just a series of valleys that run parallel to mountain ranges. The interesting thing about this place is that this is just north of here in the Mogollon Rim, just a, uh, you know, a few hundred miles north. That's where the Rocky Mountain province stops in the Mogollon Rim. And then the Sonoran Desert starts. And then just a south from here, then the Sierra Madre stops and it sort of sinks. And, and then the Sonoran Desert and Chihuahua Desert starts. And then it's because of these islands 
the Sky Islands that we see here, that these two huge provinces from the north and the south are connected. So what you see here is the result of that convergence, where our multiple ecosystems, the Chihuahuan Desert, the Sonoran Desert, from the coming from lower elevations, right? The Sonoran Desert coming from the Pacific, the Chihuahuan Desert coming from the east, and then you have these massive provinces like the Rocky Mountains, that bring in all these corridors of wildlife and vegetation from the north, and then the Sierra Madres, which are bringing all the species that are from the near volcanic axis in central Mexico and farther down south in Central America. So this is a mumble jumble, like, right? Like a a really interesting mix of different species and this is why this place is so unique and so valuable right so i just came started earlier from the sonoran desert and more classical kind of desert cactus environment and here we are in this massive grassland and historically what species of animals might have been here so this this is a place that has changed a lot over over time and we were just talking you know in the car earlier about how much this looks like some of the habitats that you might see in the big steps of Asia for example or, or the savannas of Africa and this this is this can also be called woodland or oak savanna and the reason why is because thousands of years ago but not long ago this is you know a few thousands of years ago this all of North America but especially these areas there used to be camels here and even cheetahs we were just talking about the pronghorns for example and pronghorns one of their really special attributes is that they are really fast they can reach speeds of 90 kilometers per hour right nothing can actually reach that speed no no of the predators that we know here can reach that speed there's nothing that could chase a pronghorn but it's because they used to be something that could chase them down but those those species are just gone we they went extinct because you know early humans uh, had a really great impact on the and the american continent megafauna we had negatoriums without cybertooth tigers and all the all the most famous ones but this was a really different place and so the pattern over the last you know few thousands of years has been of a diminishing amount of megafauna and the impact of human in general has has been in most of the world it has been just like reducing the sizes of the animals that we see those are the ones that tend to go out first because of lack of resources or the ones that we tend to hunt uh, first you know the bigger animals the bigger species what it remains here that is one of the reasons why it's so important is because we have still really big animals really important species and that's why it's so important to protect them would you say previous climatic changes affected the the makeup of the species even in that i guess that shorter geological period yeah that that's that's what I'm, i meant with this region has changed a lot too right eight thousand nine thousand years ago we were coming out of the glacial maximum from the last ice age and so things were changing rapidly so uh, in in many cases the Sonoran Desert started expanding, you know, further north and further, like, a bit higher elevations. The grasslands also now expanding at higher elevations, too. So we're in that, you know, warming trend that that has been happening. It was what's happening at a slower rate. But the problem that we have now is climate change, which the main difference is just the rate of change. So things warming up way faster. But yes, the, the region has changed a lot because of glacial cycles. And that's another reason why a lot of these megafauna went extinct. So what are the challenges as the executive director of this organization working in an organization where you have to work across two countries? And what I mean, too, is like logistically, you have Mexican staff, you have Mexican board members. How has that been a challenge to you? 
Yeah, well, it's one of the great joys and the challenges of the work for sure. You know, the conservation picture is really different in Mexico, so we need different tools. But part of it's just, you know, working in two languages, moving back and forth across the border, which has gotten a lot more difficult the last four years. Um, We like to work as an alliance, so we like to bring landowners, agency folks, scientists, partners together to think about shared goals and how we work together to achieve conservation and help people, particularly Mexico succeed living off the land. And so, you know, face nothing beats face-to-face and in-person talking. And that's just gotten really challenging with federal agency folks not being able to travel into Mexico and our Mexican partners not being able to get the visas they need to get into the U.S. And so we've been having to work around that quite a bit. It's also just, you know, it's a different culture in, in Mexico. So we get to learn, me as a, as a U.S. person, get to learn how to work effectively with folks in Mexico over the years, which has been great fun. There's nothing like a carne asada cookout to get some business done <laughs> at a ranch in Mexico, for sure. Paolo, here we are at the Mexican-U.S. border. It is really an amazing landscape. How is conservation different in Mexico? Well, yeah, that's, there's, there are big differences. And to begin with, I would highlight that there's, in Mexico, there's almost no public land. And that's one of the main differences with the United States. Uh, in the United States, total nationally, you have about 40% of the land is public. Whereas in Mexico, it might be around two, maybe three percent, but you know, we don't even know where that public land is in some cases. So most of the land in Mexico is private and is, and is privately owned in two different ways. One is individual private property, the same way that you have it here in the United States. And the other one is collective private property, which means that mostly on the, through the figure of something called the ejido, which was institutional land tenure figure created after the revolution in the last century. And then the other, the other form is more, it's called more communal or communidades, which, which is, belongs more to indigenous groups, indigenous people that own the land in a communal way, but it's slightly, it's different than what an ejido is. The ejido is a more contemporary type of form. So this changes the game a lot in how you do conservation because you, there's a more, there's a bigger need for doing things inclusively, which, you know, on the one hand, it has it has challenged the Mexican government and the Mexican conservation policy to try to be more inclusive and to try to come up with ways of making conservation work so that it, so that it compensates people that actually own the land. But at the same time, doing that is challenging and actually hasn't worked in in every in in all cases. And in, in fact, you know, there there are big problems with how to actually convince people that conservation can be a good thing immediately for them, in both in time and location, right? That that and so that changes a lot of how things work between the two countries. What do Mexicans think of the Sonoran Desert and these sky islands? What's their relationship to it? Here in the United States, it's probably a mixed bag, people from a tourism perspective, but maybe they're not necessarily living off the land. But is what's the, the I guess, their appreciation of it? What's the different relationship with the land? Yeah, that, that that's interesting. And, you know, because I, I would say that for uh, people in the U.S., for example, I, I, one of the most iconic signs of a tourism or to Mex for about Mexicanness and going to Mexico is the saguaro, right? It's like this or the, the nopal or the cacti. And in Mexico, depending where you are, but you know, there, there is a, uh, a tradition, of course, of uh, using nature as a, as a recreation to, as a, um, uh, with this recreational perspective. But as I was saying, because of the, the way land is owned and the way conservation is done, 
there, there is less of a culture of like the, like there is in the United States for people from different places to move around and to go to parks and visit these open spaces. And uh, there's not th- that much this culture of moving around across public land and to have a sense of belonging of these places unless it's your actual land, right? Unless you actually live there. Now, that doesn't mean that people, for example, here in northern in Sonora, in the towns of Moctezuma or Esqueda, you know, people still go out during the weekends and try to visit these places. But it's access to, to natural attractions it's it's a bit more complicated because you're usually always on someone's property right and so that complicates the relationship that people from urban areas or from towns can have with the surrounding landscapes and then there's also the problem um, a more recent problem of of safety right that is uh, the case of sonora for example which unfortunately has been run over by a lot of the cartels and the disputes between the cartels and so it's not so much of a safe safe uh, place to actually go and go camping and get yourself lost for for days, right? Or spend time with the family outside. That's a really unfortunate thing. Overall, I would say, you know, as in the same, the same, the, uh, the, the same way as it's in the U.S., I think Sonora has a great tradition of um, being an outdoor space where people try to enjoy the desert when times when it's not that hot. You also have access to the Sea of Cortez, which is a wonderful place, you know, if you keep going west. And then you have the mountains, which I, Sonora is a famous place, same as Chihuahua for a lot of Mexicans, for example, to one of the places where you, you get snow, right, every winter. And that's a big attraction for a lot of people. What kind of wildlife would you expect to see in, in this habitat that we're in right now? Well, this is one of the most biodiverse places in North America, so um, especially for mammals and birds. So you, here you can expect to see anywhere from coatis and ringtails and species of mammals that are typical of central and southern Mexico and from Central America, for example, that have their northernmost distribution here. So th- this is it for them. This is as far north as they make it. Also, jowars and ocelots of the, the, the big animals running the show. But then you can also expect to see some of the classic representatives of temperate zones, like the uh, black bears and the coyotes and the raccoons. And in, in the case of, of birds, you have everything from acorn woodpeckers and gila woodpeckers to some parts of the mountains, for example. You even get some visitors from the south to like trogons and other wonderful birds. So it is really a fascinating area. Seeing a jaguar is obviously very rare, but we are in a corridor where they actually are. How do you know they're coming through here? Well, they're being... A lot of organizations, including ourselves, and uh, and of course also government agencies on both sides of the border, there's a lot of wildlife cameras operating and monitoring programs on what kind of wildlife we're seeing, right? And we know that from also research that Jaguars, the, the territory of Jaguars actually used to go all the way as far north as the Grand Canyon, even from all the way from southern Argentina and Uruguay. And, and it seems that in the past couple of decades, uh, some individuals of Jaguars from central and southern Mexico have have been moving up, uh, and these cameras have been detecting these individuals uh, coming through Sonora and also crossing the border, uh, and in, in some of these places like the Chiricahua Mountains and the Huachuca Mountains. We, we've seen them through our research cameras, and we know they're there, and we know that they're using these places as corridors and as, as habitat, so that's why it's really important to, to conserve these places. Emily, what is the Border Wildlife Study? 
The Border Wildlife Study uses an array of cameras along 30 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border to define what the wildlife community is based on animals that are detected on our cameras. We're focusing on the medium to large-sized mammals, but we've had a tremendous diversity of other types of species appear on our cameras as well birds, insects, reptiles, but we have 30 mammal species, including the North American porcupine, four species of skunk, white-tailed coati, mountain lion, black pear, coyote, bobcats. I could go on and on and on. When you talk about how the border wall is going to impact wildlife, people care. It's important to them, but it's sort of this out of sight, out of mind. And so this camera work really must be a powerful tool for you to communicate what's going on down at the border. Yeah, we began to watch this section of the border and its wildlife community out of the imminent threat of border wall construction. And because construction has approached our study area from both the east and the west, but not actually cut it off in the middle, we now find ourselves watching one of the last remaining passable wildlife corridors in southeast Arizona. How does the study work? You know, walk me through a typical day in the field. We have an array of 58 cameras that are each spread two kilometers apart. So our field crew goes out and visit about eight cameras in a single day. We go and make sure that the camera hasn't been moved. We have a lot of cattle on this rangeland that will bump the cameras and move them. And we replace batteries and collect the memory cards from the cameras and put in new ones. Once we have those memory cards in hand, that is like gold, and we rush them back to look and see what sort of animals have been popping up on our camera. And we count the number of detections we have of each species over time. Okay, Paul, with that information related to like you now have this data, how are you going to use it just beyond looking at seeing what's showing up? How is it useful to you? Aside from just knowing the diversity, the composition of the community, we also want to know what are some of the trends, both in time and space. So what kind of animals are we seeing, where and when, how is it changing, and why do we see those differences? So it's not just about, it can be about climate, but it can also be about topography, it can also be about human activity, for example, right? And all those things are important because in this particular area, now that we are just, this is the, the bottleneck or the, the funnel where most the, the species can actually move through, it's really important that we can understand more about their behavior and more about their, their patterns so that that can help us inform conservation efforts in the future on both sides of the border, right? This is also something that will help Mexican authorities and Mexican nonprofits to improve their management. So understanding the, the detections and why are we seeing those species at that moment in that particular place, it's really important. And that's one of the reasons why we've been doing uh, vegetation service, for example, around our cameras, both from space using satellite imagery, but also on the ground so that we can know exactly what kind of vegetation, what kind of habitat, how much of rock or bare ground are we seeing. And all that helps us model the detections of species in different, at different time points and in different places. Okay, so that's great. You can figure out what species are coming to the border wall. But does this data and actually having this footage trigger any legal mechanism? So like, oh, here's an endangered species. Does someone like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, are they interested in that information? Are you sharing it? These policy triggers that factor into what you're doing. Well, we're interested certainly to understand if there are threatened and endangered species in this area. We certainly know that this is designated habitat for jaguar. Where we're standing at Yaki Spring is a place where there were ocelot in the past. Unfortunately, because of the Real ID Act that was established in 2005, we have a massive problem that all the, there are a tremendous number of federal laws and statutes totaling 84 different laws and statutes that have been waived. Because of that, 
The federal laws, including the environmental protection laws, do not apply here at the border. So even though we might find detections of species that should warrant protection, there is not currently a legal mechanism for that to stop construction. Is there anything that the executive branch could do? So you just mentioned all these waving of these laws and such that can bake in protection in between administrations. Is there something that the Sky Island Alliance is recommending? Skyland Alliance supports the congressional repeal of the Real ID Act because it's the best chance we have to remove the law waivers that continue to put our Sky Island borderlands at risk. Paula? So what are some of the policy options going on on the Mexican side of the wall? Well, the the other reason why the border wall study is important is because it, it, it the impact that it can have also affects Mexico, right? Um, Mexico and the U.S. have been collaborating for decades now on, especially on in conservation, they they put millions of dollars both countries to recover a lot of species that have been lost, including jaguars, wolves, bisons, and different black bears, different things. And uh, and uh, what is what is uh, what's disappointing is that during the past years, as the border wall was being constructed, um, the latest administration. Uh, in Mexico, uh, led by Andres Manuel López Obrador, uh, has d- never complained and never, uh, and, and in fact, actually, not only didn't complain and didn't try to um, uh, stop it from by international means, but they also uh, reduced the budget and they cut the funds for the Park Service and the Forest Service in Mexico. So right now, what we're trying to do too is to demonstrate that all these species that are just that we have left and that that are moving through these narrow paths. Uh, our species that we have been working together, both countries have been working together for a long time. And if, if the Mexican government doesn't react in a positive way too, that's just money that was uh, thrown away. Uh, we're also hoping that the Mexican government reacts and uh, starts collaborating with the Biden administration to improve the situation in the border. Luis, so when I moved here, one of the surprising animals that I encountered was a javelina. I actually wasn't familiar at all with them. They, they are an unusual species. What is it? Yeah, so a lot of folks think they're a pig, but they're not. They're a peccary, so it's a new world species. They're real cute, <laughs> snorty, um, mischievous critters that you definitely see around Tucson. And they're really important prey species in the Sky Islands for mountain lion, jaguar, and other critters. So they're a really important piece of this ecosystem. Okay, let's just say I'm going for a walk. I'm here near the border, and I actually see a jaguar. What should I do? Well, that would be really lucky on your side. But jaguars are really shy and really afraid of people, especially compared to mountain lions. Because of that, because there's the really low number of encounters, it's not really well known whether you should, you know, run away or just pretend you're dead. But you probably should not run away. But jaguars, you know, they're harmless. Most of, you know, uh, there are almost no attacks to people recorded in, in all of South America and Central America and Mexico. You know, like most species, you should probably just try to stay quiet and leave them be. Report that to conservation on profits, like, like Skyline Alliance, uh, and also to uh, conservation authorities. But also just be very discreet and very careful about not revealing perhaps the location of the animal, right? Un- unless it's someone that you trust, because 
you know, that, that hunting, illegal hunting is, all, is always a problem, especially on the Mexican side. There's something really unique about this place, and it's that this is the only place in the world, in the continent, because the jaguars only occur in, the, in this continent, but this is the only place that you can see Mexican gray wolves, right? Which so is a classical species from the north, where overlaps its territory with the most iconic tropical species, of the neotropical species that can exist, which is the jaguar. This is the only place anywhere that you could potentially see them together. And that is that that speaks of how unique this place is in terms of habitat, in terms of wilderness, in terms of space, and in conservation efforts. So this is an incredibly important detail that I think a lot of people don't don't pay attention to. Hey, doctors. Here I am at the Mexican-U.S. border, looking down this long road with this fence. Really, just a remarkable landscape getting to interview some of these Sky Island Alliance staff members. They are doing such fantastic work. It is a breathtaking landscape, and to see grasslands and what typically you think is more of a desert environment is really cool. And literally, I'm putting my hand through the fence, and I'm on the Mexican side. And so what has been the source of so much controversy in recent years, here it is, just a quiet, wind-swept location with some amazing wildlife and some amazing landscapes. Luis, so here we are at the border. Could you just describe the surroundings for us? Sure. We're standing in the San Rafael um, Valley uh, State Natural Area. So we're in some really beautiful native grassland. And we're at an area along the border where there are vehicle barriers that we're standing next to. And these are pretty permeable to wildlife, so wildlife can get over and under them. So this is a really important corridor that's still open to wildlife. And then on either side of us, we're surrounded by the Patagonia Mountains to the west and the Huachuca Mountains to the east. So we're in this special grassland spot in between a couple of Sky Island Mountains. Now, what wildlife might not be able to pass through here? Yeah, so most wildlife can pass through here. Um, actually, pronghorn, which are here in the San Rafael Valley, do have trouble with, there's actually a vehicle barrier and then a barbed wire fence right behind it. That does give some animals trouble along the border. But for the most part, large mammals and, and small mammals can get through here. So I am seeing, and I see the barbed wire, and it looks pretty permeable, but the the expectation is that they want to build, a, I guess, how do you even describe it, more solid wall, and that's the threat right now. And would, would this area become that sort of wall, depending on the policies that maybe the federal government has? Yeah, so that's what we've been uh, worried about for the last year here. Uh, they've been trying to build a border wall, which is 30-foot uh, steel bollards that are really impassable to all kinds of wildlife in this area for the last year. However, things have changed recently, and the money that was allocated for this construction is no longer. So there's really good signs that this is going to stay, for now, permeable to wildlife. So guys, we've been here at the border for close to 30 minutes, and I've yet to see a single person cross. So that really isn't such a big avenue for people crossing over the border, is it? No, it's it's not. I, and I would say that the data from wildlife cameras across the entire place doesn't support that either. Yeah. So all of this talk of an emergency at the border, you can you can see who's out here. It's birds. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, us standing here, but, you know, there, there's no emergency here. We're way out in the middle of nowhere in a lot of ways, and it, this is where the wildlife is, and that's who should be here. 
What are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about what's going on at the border? Well, one really big one is that a lot of people think of this area in, as the Sonoran and Chihuahuan Desert. And when they think of a desert, they think of an empty, <laughs> sandy ecosystem without a lot of what's going on here with the beautiful mountains and the rolling grasslands. And so lots of folks just can't really visualize the amazing habitat that's here at the border. The other piece is I, every time I've taken someone down to see the border wall that has not seen it before, they are stunned. It's really stunning to stand next to 15 or 30 feet of steel columns and really understand how it's segmenting the continent with this wall. So folks, they hear fence, they hear these different things, and they don't realize the the enormity of the structure and the road, the big roads that are built next to it and the lighting and all of that that's here at the border. So, Emily, here we are literally about 100 yards from the border. You can see part of the fence here, but we're surrounded by this big, giant open area that is absolutely cleared. It's dirt. What went on here? This is the massive construction staging area that was created when Southwest Valley constructors started the wall building contract and behind me is a massive moonscape. <laughs> it's 450 feet across, and it's been cleared of the oak woodland. So the grassland, the agave, the trees have been removed. And for the last nine months, until just recently, it's been the staging area where there were tanker trucks filled with water, bulldozers, pile drivers, the security for the border construction company was parked here. It was a massive construction site. It was really noisy. Basically, we would probably still see all that if there wasn't a change in administration, but there's just been a pivot, and so they're not here anymore. On Inauguration Day, construction was as active as ever at this point. Over the next seven days, we saw an uptick in construction activity in the final days before the pause began in the Biden, been in the Biden administration. What happened in the weeks that followed was a slow retreat of the construction equipment from this area, but it was unknown. Was it just being moved to another location temporarily? But at this point in time, the groundwater pipes that were put in to truck water from the border from further upslope in Coronado National Forest have been removed. And now all that's left is the staging area, the barren <laughs> wasteland that was left behind, and a few signs from the construction company that are telling the public to keep out. Okay, so for the staging area, I'm looking around and I just see this barren landscape. And surrounding it, as you can see, the, the, the native plants and such. But what's a potential future? It could have multiple potential futures. What are you hoping might happen here? I'm hoping that this is one of the scars from border construction that can be fully healed. I would like to see us return the native vegetation to this landscape and create a place where we can interpret the history of what happened in these embattled borderlands. So actually, there's an opportunity. Let's say a change in administration. Again, people might want to continue to build this wall, but this might actually serve as sort of an example of what it really means to kind of build this wall and what it happens to the, the local ecosystem. I know I would find peace to be able to come and visit a place where we brought trees back to the landscape, where we rebuilt habitat for wildlife after there's been so much destruction. The story of what happens at the border is always going to be unfolding. It's such a political issue. But what we know we can do now is start to heal the land and bring some of this ecosystem back in a place where it's been so affected.
talk about the dark skies work that you're doing associated with the border wall research you're doing. Well, one of the things we've been really fascinated by is seeing how active wildlife species here along the border are at night. Between sunset and sunrise, we see a majority of the mammals out and about hunting, going about their business. And it's one of the features of this part of the border that's so special is that it's still really dark and not polluted by lights. We think about the nighttime environment as being really critical for the health of animals. It affects animals being out foraging, the predator dynamics change, migratory birds are affected by artificial light. And so it's one of the features of this stretch of the border that we'd like to see protected. Not only do we not want the wall to cut off the movement of animals between Mexico and the U.S., but we want them to also have the darkness protected. And one of the risks, even if wall isn't built, is that we could have more roads and more border infrastructure like lighting that could come in and really disrupt the natural community here. So I imagine that is a long-term problem that even if they're not constructing the wall because they've pulled back, some of the infrastructure is still there. And is that part of your goal to is part of your restoration is the infrastructure too? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the first things that we'd like to see happen is any small changes that could be made with the existing border infrastructure that could benefit wildlife to be made. We'd like floodgates to be open so animal can move through holes in the wall. We'd like lights that have been put on the wall to illuminate the ground in the sky to be turned off or kept off. And then certainly as border policy evolves and there's the potential for more border infrastructure to be built. We really don't want that to include lighting. There seems to be so many layers to how you deal with the border wall, construction, maintenance. Who are you literally dealing with? What agency? How do you even communicate with trying to get these things across? We believe that if enough people on both sides of the border care about protecting this land and not having it degraded by border wall infrastructure, that we can change the state of border policy. The Department of Defense has been constructing a tremendous amount of infrastructure, and there isn't real meaningful public and community engagement on the type of construction activities that happen here and the militarization of our borders. One of our asks is to have border communities have a much stronger voice in addition to our land management agencies like the Forest Service and National Park Service and tribes to actually have a meaningful voice and to shape the border policy going forward. Luis, what is the status of the border wall in your study area? Right now, the just recently, the Biden administration has canceled further wall construction that is funded with Department of Defense money. And all of the wall construction on either side of the border wildlife study is funded through that money. So those contracts have been canceled and we're starting to see the contractors who are working on constructing the wall pulling out equipment and people. So really good news. But when they pull out, we've learned a little bit that they leave a mess. What does that mean? And what does that mean for this organization? Yeah, so uh, we have spoken about the mess and the dangers of erosion and the need to revegetate to support wildlife. So we've asked the administration to <laughs> transfer funding to restoration efforts. And it's really important that we keep an eye on restoration. Sky Island Alliance is at the ready to bring volunteers and, and do some of this restoration work and work with partners to find funding to support the land management agencies in doing this really important restoration and stabilization work. Okay, we were just interrupted by some birds. What were they? That was a flock of Mexican jays. What additional acts could President Biden take to deal with the restoration? And I guess one of my questions is you have the border wall that they've constructed, you know, these 30, the 30 foot high wall. 
can we, they just tear it down? <laughs> well, they could if they decide to. We've worked with a coalition of organizations to identify really key places uh, on the landscape where there are important pathways for wildlife or rivers like the San Pedro River near us here, for example, where they could take immediate action to open floodgates and remove wall in these really important places for uh, wildlife movement and water movement. So obviously the border wall is controversial for many reasons, but if you think of the, the public and the members of Sky Island Alliance, what's important to them about what's going on with the wall? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's important for the public to understand that, you know, there's not an emergency here at the border. This, this wall has been constructed on public lands that have been set aside because they're special places, special natural uh, gems here in the nation. And there, the, a wall is not a policy for what we're dealing with with immigration. There's other solutions and constructing wall in these remote wild places is, is not the answer. It's really damaging to our natural heritage and open space and, and all the wonderful wildlife we've been talking about. Okay, so at this stage and what we're seeing different with a different administration, what can an individual do when it comes to the issue of the border wall? Is there anything practical? I mean, one thing individuals can do and that we'll be doing at Sky Island Alliance is tracking any additional potential funding for border wall and advocating to stop that. Congress does appropriate that funding and that needs to stop to for any additional construction. Certainly, We'll be pushing the administration and agencies and uh, to fund restoration work. So funding the work to restore these roads, to pull out wall in these really uh, vital wildlife corridors. And the public needs to support that. You know, the public's voice is important in saying that we want to protect these places. We want to protect these communities on the border as well. It's not just wildlife. It's, you know, it's damaging to human communities. And they can play a role in speaking up and uh, talking with their elected representatives and being a voice for wildlife that can't speak for themselves. How much of the Arizona border it, there, that there's no wall whatsoever? I believe there's about 100 miles of the border that is not walled in the sense that it, there's not 30 foot in, impermeable wall. So like we're seeing here where our study, some of these vehicle barriers, but that fortunately is not hindering wildlife movement. And a lot of the places where there isn't wall, it's very rugged, steep terrain, like west of Nogales in the Pajarita Mountains. There's uh, some really rugged terrain there where there isn't wall built. And it's kind of the same situation where they're trying to blast into there. So these places that are left are really special places. Very rugged. Okay, so you've described some things that President Biden can do in the short term to help with all the issues around border wall. But I think a lot of us think, okay, in four years, it could easily go back. Are you thinking strategically on how you can, I guess, make it more difficult to build the border wall if you have another administration that comes in that wants to finish construction? Yeah, well, it's really vital, as we talked about before, that the Real ID Act that allows the administration to waive laws to build border wall, that that be repealed. The rule of law needs to be returned to the border. It's what's good for human communities. It's what's good for clean water and wildlife. And that's really vital. When that's in place, we have no legal tools to stop this. None of the usual Endangered Species Act, Clean Water Act. We, we just don't have those tools in the toolbox. Luis, we are looking at this spectacular view, but also something very disturbing. What are we looking at? Yeah, so we're looking out toward the San Pedro River from the Huachuca Mountains at Montezuma Pass, and we can see the, the beautiful landscape and mountains on both sides of the border. 
And running right down the middle of it, we can see this border wall, steel bollards wall dividing the landscape, cutting through the river. And we can also see these large areas uh, where land has been completely bladed clear for staging areas for construction of, of additional border wall. So what we're looking at is actual national park land, right, where they actually cleared the land to do the work on the border wall. People don't realize a lot of that's happening. Yeah, so we're looking at an area on uh, national park land at Coronado National Memorial where they've bladed land and done additional wall construction. And then where we can see the green cottonwood ribbon of the San Pedro River, that's BLM land. It's the San Pedro Riparian National Conservation Area where they've also put in a staging area. I think the staging area there might be private land, but they have built wall across the river now on public land. So we're at the top of this pass. It's this beautiful location high up in the mountains, and this is where it stopped. We had visited some of the areas where it's a much more permeable fence. This is where it stopped, but the goal was to continue to build this high-type fence, and it stopped right here. Yeah, so just behind us, up, up beyond the peak, are additional roads and area where they started constructing road to put in the wall, but it has stopped. So yes, when, when Biden... The Biden administration halted border wall construction. This was an area that where construction was in the in the works and stopped. There's a potential we could see some of this fence ripped up. We hope so. And the San Pedro River that we're looking at is a really uh, good spot to start. This is a vital wildlife corridor and migratory flyway. The San Pedro River is a life-giving <laughs> ribbon of water here in this more arid landscape flowing uh, from Mexico north into the U.S. And they have actually constructed wall across it at this point. So the floodgates need to be opened, and that is a prime section to tear down. Luis, so we have just walked across. We're right here near the border. You don't necessarily get to go out as much as you probably want. What has really stood out to what you've seen today? Yeah, well, I actually haven't been out to this spot here in the Huachuca Mountains since they've built a pretty significant and really horrifying road up the side of the mountain. So that was pretty stunning to me. I've seen the, the photographs, but seeing the actual destruction of the side of the mountain is pretty heartbreaking. And just driving along, you know, we've really been noticing a lot of dead oaks and the dryness. The drought is really visibly prominent uh, in the trip here. But I would also say um, it's really wonderful to see uh, arriving here that equipment for border wall construction has been removed. And this wonderful, really important pathway for wildlife is still permeable. And so that's really good news, which lifts my heart for sure. Okay, so your organization is collecting data on these springs. How do you articulate that to the public and your members, how important it is to do this kind of work? Well, people love flowing water, actually. <laughs> Spring, the Springs work has been a really popular project all along with volunteers. And people, I think, inherently understand the magic of hiking out to a place like this where we walk through some dry land. And when you come to flowing water and you can see all the different plants and animals that are in that one spot around the water, it really kind of speaks for itself. And then we like to, you know, talk about how important water is for wildlife and make that connection because people tend to be very connected with wildlife and share all the different kinds of species that we see at springs and photographs of them there and just help people feel the joy of, of the life-giving essence of springs. Well, with a lot of studies, when you're collecting data, it, it gets more important the longer you do it. What is the long-term outlook for maintaining this work? 
Oh, yes. Well, we've always, we started this work with a model of working with volunteers. So the good news is that, you know, we've, we've changed over the years and the Spring Seeker app was, is a great new way to work with volunteers in a different way. But like I said, people love uh, working with us to visit water and, and document what's there. And so that will continue to be an important piece of it. And the more we deal with drought and climate change, the more each water source that's still flowing becomes really important. And so I think rallying all the different land managers and private landowners and people around those special places to keep watch on them and protect them will will be the path forward. So Emily, we're going to be talking about water. Why has the Sky Island Alliance focused so much on springs in the area? Springs historically have been a very reliable source of water for people, plants, and wildlife across the Sky Island region. Springs are where groundwater comes up to the surface, and they really define these amazing oases where many species benefit from water being available year-round. There's a monitoring aspect of all this. Can you elaborate? We are checking on the health of springs across the region to understand where do we have the most water flowing, where are the most reliable springs, where do we have springs that are threatened because of a variety of reasons from groundwater pumping, reducing the water in the aquifer that feeds the spring, to surface problems like cattle getting into springs, eliminating the vegetation and fouling the water. So what are you going to do with all this data that you're collecting? For us, there's so much power in having information about springs across the region and how they're changing over time. Our goal is to identify the springs that have high conservation value, are really the ones that are likely to keep flowing in the future and to support lush and vibrant ecosystems and make sure we're doing everything we can to protect them. We put all of our data through a decision tree that helps us understand, do we have a cattle problem where we need to work with the land managers to exclude cattle away from the water source? We look at the fire impacts in a watershed and is there broader fire management that could be done to prevent a spring from being buried? And then there's larger landscape level policy decisions that we can inform with these data about where we want to make sure that we lessen dependence on groundwater pumping so that we can keep springs flowing um, in upland habitats like these mountains. So we just trekked across near the southern border here. You could actually see the border wall at one point, and you've taken me to this spring, and I was hoping I could go for a swim or something, but explain to me what we're seeing right now. We're looking at rocks that have been worn over time by flowing water. And there are basins where you can imagine dipping into the water on hot days. Unfortunately, this isn't one of those days we're finding water. In the fall of 2020, after a miserable year of very little rainfall, we found this spring dry for the first time. We've been monitoring the spring with a camera recording wildlife. And even in a few weeks before the spring totally went dry, there was a mountain lion with three cubs that came through here. So this is a known watering hole for many, many species. And it's one that we hope is going to come back soon as the rains return to the region. So that's fantastic. What's the name of this spring? This is Yaki Spring. So how many springs do you guys actually monitor? 
Well, last year we launched our Spring Seeker program, which is inspiring hikers and anyone who cares to find water in Sonora or Arizona to go out and do these health checkups on springs. Last year we took measurements on more than 250 springs, and we hope to do even more spring monitoring this year. We see annual variability in these springs. Sometimes they dry out, sometimes you might get a little bit of a flow, but how is climate change factoring into what you're seeing here? Well, one of the major things we're concerned about is a general drying of the region. We have a lot of aquifer depletion in different parts of the Sky Island region, which means there's less water available to flow out of these spring sites and feed these spring ecosystems. So we're really concerned about water coming into the system and being available. But we're also concerned about how we're managing our watersheds. There's risk to these springs from fires, for example. And with climate change, we see higher intensity fires that can remove more vegetation and put the risk of landslide and actually covering up and burying springs at a much higher risk. We are in view of the border wall, but this seems like a pretty remote area. And they've actually cut into the mountainside where they were building a road. Even though they've stepped back from building that portion of the wall, what are sort of the long-term impacts to the spring watershed? Well, certainly the border construction activities that have been primarily for road building are a concern because of the short-term draining of water that happened. There was groundwater being pumped out of Coronado National Forest just a few hundred feet from us, really. That was being used to not only make the concrete that the steel bollards on the ridge above us were put in place, but also to spray water on the newly constructed roads. Big tanker trucks were spraying our precious aquifer water all up and down the border because so many construction trucks were moving through the area. So that's the short-term problem. The longer-term problem is a lot of vegetation has been removed. There's risk of erosion and landslides. We're going to see less infiltration of rainfall and snow when it actually comes back to this area because of some of the damage that's been done. And that's where I think we can work on restoration and trying to make this area act more like a sponge the way it used to in the past, absorb more water so that it can be flowing more reliably over the seasons here, like at Yaki Spring. Okay, let's talk about when it's a bit wetter. Let's say we have a relatively normal monsoon season, which there isn't really seem to be a normal one anymore. What does this area look like after a monsoon season? Well, what we like to see during the monsoon season is a massive flush of productivity, the water and the, the heat in the area can really create a vibrant boom of plants. We see a lot of greening of grasses. The trees can put out more leaves. We can see a second spring where there's a lot of flowering. And typically that's a huge time of activity for a lot of animals in the area. We didn't see that during the last monsoon season because there was really very little rainfall at all. And we didn't detect much spike in wildlife occurrence in this area last summer. Paula, so here we are at Yaki Spring, and it's dry as a bone, but we've learned a bit about what these springs mean to the region. Let's talk about on the Mexican side. Are you guys monitoring springs across the border? We are. There's a difference also between 
uh, both countries about the, the amount of data that exists on springs, right? Uh, unfortunately, Mexico doesn't have the same amount of information, high resolution information. So one of the things that we're doing is to try to make uh, catch up in Sonora and try to produce more information about where those springs are located and what's the status, what's the, the quality of the habitat around them. And to do that, we have partnered with Unisierra, which is a, a small university in the in Montezuma town in Sonora, and with uh, other nonprofit partners to, so that we can use our Spring Seeker app and get to these places, which again, uh, as, as, you, as you know, it's, it's a bit different or more challenging because this is all private property. Sometimes you can have access, sometimes you cannot have access. And so there's other limitations, but we're trying to do create a same network of springs that we can map and monitor over time because the drought impacts do not recognize borders and they're as bad over there as they are on this side. So was the expectation with the Springs today we're, we're doing with Sky Island Alliance that it would be shared with similar Mexican partners? Yes, of course. Yeah, we are gathering all this data so that, you know, over time, once we have more seasonality signals on it, then we can, we'll, we are sharing it with our partners. We're sharing it with the students that are also doing their thesis projects on this, on this kind of, with this kind of information, but also especially shared with the Park Service in Mexico, which is called the uh, National Commission of Protected Areas so that they can also improve their management strategy approach ranchers to talk over best practices to manage their cattle and their water sources for both wildlife and their own purposes. So not all water resources are created equal. Why is this one so unique and important? We're really focused on the water sources that are in this stretch of the U.S.-Mexico border because it's still passable to wildlife. Imagine being a wide-ranging species like black bear or mountain lion who for many, many generations, maybe thousands and thousands of years, these species have been moving between Sky Island mountain ranges in search of food and water. Well, now they encounter things like a 30-foot steel wall they can't cross. They're going to be walking for many more miles. And the first water source that they can come to is a spring like this one, Yaki Spring. It's imperative that we work with the Forest Service and the ranchers here to do everything we can to let this water source flow again. It could be the difference between life and death for some of these species. Hey, Adapters, before we wrapped up our field trip along the border, I asked Emily, Luis, and Paolo what their favorite spot is in the entire Sky Island region. It might give you some ideas if you are in the area or plan to visit. What's your favorite spot in the Sky Island region? Well, my favorite spot is probably right looking out of my own home window where we have badgers that come and take a bath in a water bowl we put out. I really love the Chiricahua Mountains on the east side. There's a special place there, uh, South Fork of Cave Creek, where I've spent a lot of time bird watching and dunking in the perennial water that's there. So it's a really special spot in terms of bird diversity and seeing lots of different critters. Okay, well, I'll I'll repeat one like for the Chiricahua Mountains. The first time I was there and it really, really impressed me, like made an impression on me and especially the eastern side that that canyon is out of this world. I think it's one of the hidden jewels of, of the United States. But I also love the Pinaleño Mountains. Uh, that's the highest sky island. It's above 10,000 feet and, and there's spruce forest up there. So that basically means that you can travel from the Sonoran Desert or Chihuahuan Desert and up to Canada, right, in a matter of 30 minutes. And that, that to me, is such a unique place in the world. So uh, I, I really love that mountain, too. 
Hey, Adapters, I hope you enjoyed that visit to the border wall. What an adventure and what an amazing landscape. I wanted to share more of the Alliance's story with you, so I interviewed two board members and a volunteer. You'll hear from more of the great team that is working to conserve this region. Hey, Adapters, joining me is Claire Zucker. Claire works at the University of Arizona as the director of Pima County Cooperative Extension. Hi, Claire. Hello, how are you? Well, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you joining me. Well, first off, let's just get a little background on you. What do you do there at the extension? Well, I'm the the director of the office. We do a whole lot of different things, including 4-H, horticulture. Uh, You may have heard of Master Gardeners Program. We also have a lot of health and nutrition programming. Tucson Village Farm is under our auspices as well as all the other 4-H clubs uh, around the region. So just a big variety of services within the county. We answer a lot of questions, and we try and help people wherever we can to help them make their lives better. So how long have you been on the Sky Island Alliance board? I was trying to remember that. I think it's like five or six years now, quite a while. Okay, so why did you join the board in the first place? For a long time, wanted to be in an, on environmental boards as a way to give back to the community. My history is in watershed planning, uh, sustainability planning. I worked for Pima Association of Governments for many years on a regional and the whole region. And, and I was on the Audubon board for many years. When I got off the Audubon board uh, about a year later, they asked if I would join Sky Island Alliance. I already knew about SIA and I was already really impressed with their programming. So it was just a no-brainer to um, try and support them by being on the board. Okay, so the Alliance has their focus areas, but what are your main concerns for this whole region? They very much align with Sky Island Alliance. I think that habitat connectivity is a really critical aspect. Being a water planner, I'm also very concerned about the long-term preservation and restoration of of our our flowing rivers and also our springs. Those water resources are critical to all of the the wildlife and, of course, the plants in this region. And it's a precarious balance, particularly in in light of climate change and and increasing heat and more sporadic uh, precipitation. So I worry about I don't know, the ability for our landscape to sustain itself over time. And Sky Island Alliance is a very unique, very unique nonprofit because it's looking holistically across the landscape, but while also doing science-based research and documentation. And I think that's one of the things that really attracted me to Sky Island Alliance is the, is the science-based basis for their work. I love seeing a good graph. I love seeing a good pie chart. I like knowing numbers. How many of those did you see? And so I I find it very satisfying. And I also really like the staff at Sky Island Alliance. They they sort of align between that, that place of pure joy and enjoyment of our natural environment and the nitty-gritty hard work it takes to really ensure that we understand it and can protect it. So not all board members, when they join a board, necessarily work in the field on the organization that they're part of. And so you, you generally are in, in that space. Do you find the work that you do in, in your organization overlaps much with the Alliance? That's an interesting question. I think my the, I probably had the greatest overlap when I was working at PAG, Pima Association of Governments, and was very involved in watershed planning and in Sienega Creek in particular, doing documentation of the flows and the 
the sort of yearly changes and monthly changes in that habitat there. So I think that work probably overlapped more than my current work does. However, between those two jobs, between becoming the director of Pima County Cooperative Extension and my work at PAG, I worked at the Water Resources Research Center as the associate director and in also with the university. That is also with the university. And in that capacity, I thought a lot about water resources as well. And those natural flows are so precious and irreplaceable. So we have a very complex way of managing water for people, but it's much harder to manage water for nature if we're not in there trying to learn about it and protect it and be advocates for nature, for nature and and the water systems that provide the sustenance for that habitat and wildlife, then there won't be anybody doing that. So this is one way I can give back. I can be engaged and knowledgeable about what's happening in this whole southeastern Arizona and into Mexico. Well, on that note, what's it like working on a board where there's representation from two countries? I love that. I just love it. I find the perspectives are really interesting. I learn about the way that the Mexican government and the national nonprofits and people involved in environmental issues, how they're, you know, some of their constraints and some of their concerns, that their resources. I learn things all the time. And, you know, Nature doesn't stop at the border. These landscapes are broad. And this particular landscape is so unique. The the Sky Islands with their many, many habitats down from the deserts and and few intermittent streams and the lowlands all the way up into the high forests. And that stretches, that bit of geography stretches into Mexico. So you can't cut it off at the border. It's wonderful to be with other people that are that are working at it from a Mexican perspective. So that's that's been really great. So for the past year, even as board members, the challenge of conducting board business with COVID has been a challenge. But what are you looking forward to in the year ahead? Well, that's kind of interesting. It's I think in some ways been easier to connect with my Mexican counterparts on the board during COVID because we're all on Zoom mm-hmm. and that has actually created this sort of feeling of everybody really being in the room on an equal basis, rather than people in the United States being in one boardroom and the people participating from Mexico being on camera. We're all in the same space. And that's actually been an equalizer in some ways and easier to communicate across the border. I hope we continue that, at least for some of our engagement on the board. Do you have a favorite spot in the Sky Island region? Oh, very good. Well, of course, Sienega Creek is near and dear to my heart, really is. I spent so many hours down in that creek. I'm really intrigued by this border photo project, and I would really like to visit more of the photo locations along the border. It's a very impressive, again, data-heavy piece of work where they're really collecting information, not just in the, at the key spots that we would normally look for wildlife, but in between those spots, because it's on a grid basis. Excellent. Okay, Claire, this has been a treat talking with you and thanks for coming on and thanks for serving on the board. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Hey, actors, joining me is Britt Rosso, a longtime volunteer with the Sky Island Alliance. Hey, Britt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. How's it going today? It's going great. So let's learn a little bit about the work that you're doing with the the Alliance. So how long have you been volunteering with the Sky Island Alliance? 
Well, I think my memory serves me correctly. I went to a meet and greet party they had in the fall of 2019. And actually at that time, I met some of the staff and adopted one of their uh, wildlife cameras. So to answer your question, sometime around the October, November of 2019. Okay, so you're still learning a bit about them. That's great. So speaking of wildlife, what is the volunteer work that you do with the Border Wildlife Study? Right now, so I, I guess for history, for context, I assisted Skyline Alliance in March of 2020, right before the pandemic blew up, with installing multiple blocks of cameras within the study area. And then there was some initial fine-tuning of the cameras, and then we eventually rolled into a maintenance mode. So Right now, I support the Border Wildlife Study in maintenance mode of servicing cameras about every six weeks, changing SD cards, checking batteries, making sure they haven't been you know, bumped or, or moved. So that's my main effort with the Border Wildlife Study. And some of these are in pretty remote areas. You have to kind of drive out in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah, you call it the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I've adopted one of the blocks. So I go down every six weeks and they're fairly remote. Some are some are close to dirt roads, but it's, you know, it's two hours, good two hour drive from my house to get there. The cameras we work with are right on the border. So you are actually pulling out the, the, the disc, which has the information of what the camera might have seen. You don't get to see that per se, but eventually you've actually seen what they're seeing, right? Has, you know, is that pretty surprising how much wildlife are going by these cameras? Absolutely. And yes, you are correct. I swap out the SD cards with all the data, put in the fresh ones, and then I return those full cards back to the Skyland staff who then analyze and process and go through, I think, over 2 million photos so far since the study has begun. And as far as the, the number, the diversity of the species, we are all very surprised at how rapidly that number climbed on the different species that we were picking up with the cameras. Any sort of standouts for you, any wildlife that you were really thrilled to see? I mean, my gut reaction is all of them, okay. you know, whether it's a whether it's a bee or a butterfly or, you know, or, or a black bear. And I only get to see them for the most part as the public gets to see them when they put out their quarterly or biannual study reports and analysis. Sometimes if there's something very interesting on one of the cameras I serviced in my adopted block, they might share that with me. But no, it's just amazing that the different species that we're seeing and detecting down the borderlands. Can you tell me a bit about the Spring Seeker program, which is another volunteer program, right? It is. I think that started in the summer or fall of 2020. And that is basically an app that Sky Alliance has developed. And it's available on their website. They have a couple webinars or coffee breaks recorded that people can watch to figure out how to join or become a Spring Seeker. And they made it intentionally very intuitive. So it's, it's citizen science-based. It's an intuitive application on your smartphone or tablet, and you can collect data when you're just casually hiking, or you can go out and actually actively seek specific springs to collect the data for Sky Island. And what they're trying to do with that is just identify just these water sources in the region, right? That's correct. Yes. Their focus is, of course, in the Skylands in our region, and the intent of the effort is to get fresh data that Skyland shares collaboratively with the Forest Service and Park Service and other land management agencies and then ultimately, post-COVID, that will help them determine and develop a restoration plan. What springs need the most dire need of, of some sort of restoration? What do you enjoy most about volunteering with the Sky Island Alliance? Wow, that's a hard question. I think what I enjoy most is working with some very enthusiastic Skyland staff members, my team members. I feel like I'm part of the family by helping and supporting them. I also truly enjoy collecting data and being 
part to help them meet their mission of protecting, preserving, and restoring the Sky Islands here in Southern Arizona. So just being part, you know, part of the team, and I'm just one of over 100 volunteers, you know, so I'm playing a very small part, but I really, truly enjoy being able to fill that niche and, and play that part to help support their mission. Awesome. So what is your favorite spot in the entire Sky Island region? <laughs> I keep finding new ones, Doug, so that's a really hard question. Got to answer. Um, you know what? I think some, I have done spring seeking on some very remote springs in the southern Rincon Mountain wilderness that were just incredible, incredible sites, incredible plants and animal species that were located up there. Even during this extreme drought, this epidemic drought we're in, it's hard to put my finger on a, on a specific place. But I love the Chiricahuas. I love the southern Rincon wilderness. I love the southern Huachucas. I can't have <laughs> You did it. You answered. You know you didn't have trouble. You described it very nicely. Yeah. Okay, Britt, really appreciate what you're doing with Sky Island Alliance. It's great that they have volunteers like you actively supporting what they're doing, and thanks for coming on. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Juan Carlos Bravo. Juan Carlos is the director of the Mexico program for the Wildlands Network and also a board member of the Sky Island Alliance. Hi, Juan Carlos. Hey, Doug. How's it going? All right. So you are a board member. I want you to come and talk about that a little bit. But first off, what do you do with the Wildlands Network? Well, as director of the Mexico program, I am supervising a team of people who are working on policy issues, trying to provide better legal frameworks and policies for natural protected areas, and as well as folks working on road ecology issues, trying to improve habitat connectivity for wildlife that is being fragmented by roads. And so our intent in, in preserving this connectivity is keeping populations of animals better connected and more capable of adapting to things such as climate change. We also promote the, the establishment of new protected areas, whether it's private voluntary protected areas or federally designated protected areas. That's, that's most of what we're doing. We're also involved a little in promoting the science of connectivity and, and trying to understand better how animals move over vast landscapes in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. So obviously very relevant to what the Sky Island Alliance is doing. That's fantastic. Yes. Okay, yes. so how long have you been a board member of the Alliance? About six years, I'd say. And how's that been over six years? How, what, you know, when you first started, like, why did you join in the first place? And what, what have you seen over the last six years? Well, I joined back then. I already knew the organization and we had worked together on a number of projects before I joined as a, as a board member. And of course, the work I do in my current organization is very complementary with the work of the Sky Island Alliance. So we have an interest in the same landscape, many of the same species, many of the same issues, and our approaches support each other. So it was sort of natural when they invited me to join as a board member to support the, the Sky Island Alliance with whatever knowledge and insights I might provide, especially as, as regards to what's going on in Mexico in terms of, of conservation and how to expand the organization's impact in you know, south of the border. So I obviously hear a lot of what people on the U.S. side think of the Sky Island region. 
But what do Mexicans think of the Sky Island region and that ecosystem? What do the people on the ground think of it? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. Most of the Mexican Sky Islands are in the state of Sonora. And, and Sonora is very proud of its mining and ranching heritage. And so a lot of the landscape has been impacted by these two economic activities. And it's hard for people to perceive sometimes uh, those impacts. Oftentimes, the, the discourse of the economic benefits of these things that have been going on for literally hundreds of years in the region, it's not very balanced, I would say. In Mexico, people relate to nature in a different way. It's not as common for people to go hiking. There's no public lands in Mexico where people can go camping and engaging with nature in, in the same manner as, as they do in the United States. And so the, the relationship is often very different, maybe not so much leaning towards recreational spaces as it is in, in the United States. But of course, people are also aware of the, the beauty of the Sky Islands and, and proud of, of its natural heritage. We see it more often in private ranchers who are aware of the biodiversity in their properties and want to protect them, the species in some way. Have you actually seen a jaguar in person? No, no, I haven't. And just to give you an example of how hard that would be, I used to manage at some point the Northern Jaguar Reserve, 20,000 hectare expanse of private lands in the core area of jaguar habitat in Sonora. And we had a, a local cowboy there who had worked in the region for 30 years working for us as, as a reserve guardian. And in those 30 years, he only came across a jaguar two times. Uh, somebody actually living there on the landscape and moving about all the time, either walking on or on horseback. And, and even so, you know, it, it's not a common occurrence at all. <laughs> well, those are two very special times. I'm sure though, that would be amazing. You've been with the Alliance long enough, six years that how do you see the differences? And I guess the approaches, the, this emerging issue of climate adaptation, it's something you're dealing with. But then the Sky Island Alliance deals with it. Are, are they very similar? Do you feel like they kind of take different approaches in the two different countries? There's definitely, you know, there's, there's going to be different approaches. One of the core issues, like I mentioned before, is the lack of public lands in Mexico. Of, of any, I mean, there are some some publicly, they're not vast swaths of territories like, like they are in the, in the United States. And so you don't have these agencies like the Forest Service or the BLM who can decide to devote a, a good portion of their lands to, to some form of climate adaptation and people get engaged in that the way Skyland Alliance has been supporting whether it's the Forest Service or the Park Service in restoration, mitigation, other such things. That's just not how it happens here. A lot of the effort in Mexico has been focused on trying to connect with ranchers and landowners to somehow provide information that they can use and, and technical expertise they can use to improve their cattle husbandry practices and their land stewardship practices to to face you know increased droughts increased increases in temperature etc in a way that benefits both the ranching operation and wildlife this approach is is definitely different there are of course other things that have been done historically different in, in mexico and the united states a, a notable example is fire management and the, as a result of, of climate change the united states has seen some really catastrophic fires in recent times which are also the result of, of a long-standing 
policy of, of fighting every single fire. Mexico never quite approached wildfire in the same manner. So a lot of the fire dynamics that naturally occurred on landscapes that are very similar were allowed to occur for minutes. And so there, we don't have uh, many places the, the massive buildup of fuel that, that the U.S. has. And so adapting to drought and, and increased potential for fire is, is probably not as, as difficult, I would say, as, mm. as it's proving to be in the United States. <laughs> Do you have a favorite spot in the Sky Island region? <laughs> that would probably be the Northern Jaguar Reserve. I have, I was, like I mentioned, very much involved in the in the establishment of that reserve 15 years ago, and in its management for a number of years. I no longer am, but there are places there that are so so remote and feel so wild. And, and you walk around, you sit in, next to a, a clear pool of water. And it feels like, you know, a, a jaguar could just walk by and not even notice you as it, as it goes on its way. That would be, that would be the place I, I'd pick. Well, gosh, that'd be just the coolest pl- name of a place to work possible, the Jaguar Reserve, you know, and just to have that in the title, that would be pretty amazing. <laughs> well, Juan Carlos, it's been a treat chatting with you and learning about what's going on on the Mexico side of the border with what the Alliance is doing and what, what you're doing. And thanks for coming on. Thank you, Doug, and thanks for your interest in the Sky Islands, a beautiful place that we all love a lot. Okay, we're back, and I am back with Louise, and we had that field trip, and I've talked to other people that are part of the Alliance and doing some really cool work. It's been such an awesome journey just learning what you guys are up to, but just really quickly, what stood out for you on that field trip we did? Yeah, so it was um, wonderful to to be standing in this, what we like to call the path of the jaguar down there, this important corridor for wildlife and see that it's still, part of it is just still open for wildlife to move back and forth across the US-Mexico border. That lifts my heart seeing that on the ground. And it's been an important focus of our work the last year. We also saw the impacts of the drought for sure. So we visited a spring that we've been seeing water at for over a year now that's gone dry. Um, We were seeing a lot of stress in the oak trees turning brown and the habitat just looking very stressed from the drought. So that's uh, tough to see and definitely concerning and an important part of what we'll be focusing on to try and help ecosystems adapt in the coming years. Okay, so the things that we did on that field trip, we're going to talk, I want to talk a little bit about climate adaptation as an organization. You had mentioned earlier in the episode about climate change being such an important driver. And when you think about even what we did with the border wall or the springs, how climate change is playing into that. And do you see even the work that you're doing on the border wall is being adaptation work. And I would argue that the, the wall was put up because people seem to think that migration from other countries is a big problem and you need to put up this wall. And there's talk of climate change could drive even more migration. Do you see that as part of your organization, as your adaptations, even when it comes to issues like the border wall? Yeah, so climate change adaptation is important to us and a, and a big part of our conversation in our conservation investments, because we certainly understand that there's going to be uh, some places that are refugia for species and that are more important for them in the future. And we are also a big part of our work overall is protecting connected open space. And that's really vital to help wildlife respond and adapt to climate change. And so one of the things we were looking at in terms of the field trip was this 
last one of these last remaining corridors at this point for wildlife to move around between Sky Islands in Mexico and Sky Islands in the U.S. And it's going to be really important for us to keep that corridor as open and functioning, including with there being water available on the landscape for wildlife to be able to drink as they move through that corridor. And then more broadly, you know, Water's just such a key, it's such a key resource for wildlife and plants and the diversity of life generally here. It's an underpinning for biological diversity and it's disappearing. So humans are using more of it, less of it's available because of warming temperatures and decreased precipitation. And so what we're thinking about is how we identify springs and other water sources on the landscape that are most important to protect and put in place restoration uh, restoration approaches as well that help those water ecosystems be as resilient as possible to help wildlife continue to thrive into the future. I think a lot of conservation groups are struggling on how they integrate adaptation, let's say, into their strategic plan, because a lot of times even their core business and core programs are related to what you might do with adaptation. Are you thinking? thinking about climate change in a strategic way? You have a strategic plan. Is it in there or do you plan to have it in there or do you feel like you just cover it with the work that you're doing? So we, we've done work in the region around climate adaptation planning with a number of different partners, do, dozens of land managers and scientists and other NGOs. And that work still guides our work as well. We very explicitly think about climate change in terms of where we make conservation investments and are thinking about things like if we're implementing resistance strategies to try to help a special place in the landscape persist, how do we do that in the context of helping larger transformation that still supports biological diversity and keeps a number of species thriving? So it's a it's a key part of our strategy and how we think about where we work on the landscape and where we invest. And it's just such an overwhelming driver right now with drought and heat for uh, impacts on wildlife, which is a key part of our focus. So there's no escaping it. (laughs) Okay. How does COVID impacted the work that you've been doing over the past year? So we used to work with a model where we were out a lot throughout the year with groups of volunteers. So leading volunteers, uh, staff leading volunteers in groups to do restoration work, to do spring surveys, to look for wildlife, that kind of thing. And we had to stop that last year. And what we did was instead of bringing people together in groups, we developed some innovative uh, new approaches to, to our program work around monitoring wildlife and monitoring springs, which we talked a little bit about in the field, but creating an app called Spring Seeker so that volunteers can go out on their own hiking and gather information for us. And with our wildlife monitoring work, people can join our photo fauna network and bring their own camera on their property into the study of wildlife across the region and manage that on their own. And with the border wildlife study, you know, we've been managing that primarily with staff for now. We're looking forward to getting out with groups of volunteers again, because it's been such a key part of our work. But we were also able to get a lot of information collected and work done in the interim without that capacity, fortunately. Let's say someone's listening to this and they get the urge to come see the Sonoran Desert and the Sky Islands. They arrive in Tucson and they're like, okay, what do I do? What would you recommend for someone if they really want to get a sense of what the Sky Islands are all about in the area? 
Yeah, so the easiest the easiest Sky Island intro from Tucson is what we've been talking about earlier in the podcast, driving up Mount Lemmon outside of Tucson. You can drive all the way up to the top of the mountain. And as you drive up, you'll see all these wonderful different ecosystems. And you can also pull out at Vista Points and stop and have a look out at the landscape and you'll see other mountains popping up in the distance out of the Sonoran Desert and Chihuahuan Desert habitat. And I would recommend too that get up the mountains, but if you want to see a lot of clustering of wildlife, and you actually do see a lot of wildlife just when you go hiking, but the Sonoran Desert Museum is fantastic to kind of see all those things in one spot. Absolutely. Then you can see the coatis and the uh, ocelots, which you're not going to see driving at Mount Lemmon, but they are here. (laughs) Okay. And so if someone wants to learn more about the Sky Island Alliance, what should they do? And let's say if they're in the area, they want to be a volunteer, what should they do? Sure. So our website's a great place to start, skyislandalliance.org. And on there is a calendar of events. So you can see what's coming up in terms of volunteer activities. We also host bi-monthly coffee breaks, which are Zoom presentations and trainings and sort of gatherings around different topics related to our work and the region. It's a great way to learn more about wildlife here, learn how to use your own camera, wildlife camera, and those kinds of things. So Those are also on our website. You can check that out. And all of our current program work that we're talking about is there as well. If you want to learn more about one of these initiatives like Border Wildlife Study or Spring Seeker and find out more about how to get involved yourself. Okay. And so one of the reasons I want to share your story is that you you truly have a unique mission. You're on the the border with Mexico and the impact of the border wall and all these issues. So there's people all over the United States who are very interested in you guys succeeding what you're doing. Let's say they want to donate to the Sky Island Alliance and local people or people that are in Maine or Washington state. How do they go about doing that? Oh, sure. Yeah, so there's also a donate page on our website. So you can donate easily online. And if you go to that page, if you would rather make a phone call, we're happy to take your phone call. And Georgina is listed there for you to to give a call to. And certainly, you know, we're all about keeping wildlife thriving and connected and water flowing in the Sky Islands. And this is a really special place in the world. And in the United States. So we hope you'll join us in supporting wildlife and water. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. What an epic journey. Thanks to Luis and the team for letting me join them on that field trip to the border. As you heard, doing conservation work on an international border is hard work and very complex. Throw the short and long-term challenges of climate change into that, and you quickly discover conservation work will require some innovative thinking. I applaud the work the Sky Island Alliance is doing. Thanks to Emily and Paolo for sharing their expertise. They have recruited an amazing staff to do this work. And as an update, Paulo has actually taken another position with a conservation group in Mexico, but I'm sure we'll still hear from him as he continues to do his critical conservation work. Thanks, Paulo, for your efforts with the Alliance. And also thanks to Britt, Claire, and Juan Carlos for joining me to share more of the Alliance's story. As for the border wall, with the change in presidential administrations, the immediate threat of new construction has stopped, but the existing wall still poses incredible challenges to the region. And what happens when the next administration decides it wants to complete the wall? I encourage you to learn more and take some of the actions that Emily and Louise said would be important to ensure the wall isn't completed. It is having a profound negative effect, and it's hard to imagine what a completed wall might mean for the region's wall 
wildlife. Let's stop this thing now and hopefully we'll find ways to tear down some of the existing wall. I recognize it's a complicated subject, but there are other policy options to pursue long before a long, ineffective border wall can be completed. On a positive note, I recorded these interviews in the early summer, and since then, we have had an epic monsoon season. The rain has been relentless, and the desert has come alive. It's hard to explain how a desert ecosystem can glow green, but that is what's happening right now. Cacti, agave, palo verde, mesquite, acatillos, they are all exploding in growth and color. The springs along the border have been inundated with rains. My weekly hikes have become breathtaking, more so. On that note, I live in the foothills of the Catalina Mountains, and I have a favorite hike that I hike to the top of Bear Canyon several times a week. Take a look at the America Daps webpage for this episode, and I've included what the valley looked like in June, and then compare with a photo I took after some of the recent rains. The contrast is dazzling. So at least this year, the rains have returned. But as Luis said, it remains to be seen if the climate long term will be less wet. Many models show the region in a mega drought, and we could easily return to the conditions we endured last year with record low rain. But for the moment, we're enjoying the desert coming alive. As for the Sky Island region, it is difficult to describe how beautiful it is. If you live in the region, you'll understand, and I challenge you to get out more and learn more about this unique ecosystem we live in. When I ask people in Tucson what a Sky Island is, most have no idea. And if you're from another part of the country or world, and you're curious to come and see for yourself, definitely visit the Sky Island Alliance website and see maps of the region. And if you want some recommendations, contact me. I would be thrilled to share my insight on what to visit. It's a glorious area, and I've just scratched the surface exploring it. And if you are inspired by the work that the Alliance is doing and are looking to find ways to financially support their efforts, as Louis said, check out their website to learn more. They need support, and it's worthy of your donation. Okay, Adapters, I hope you enjoyed the visit to the Sky Islands. Keep up the great work, and I'll see you next time.